listen to just a few texts so that you can see the sweep. Whoever does not receive you, speaking to his disciples, nor heed your words as you go out from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Paul, in a sermon to the Athenians in Acts 17, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having proven to all men that he will do this by raising him from the dead. Two texts from Hebrews. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Or, if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I do not see how any preacher can avoid this theme with a clear conscience, seeing how prominent it is in Scripture. The second reason I feel one must preach on judgment is that there are some people for whom the fear of judgment might be the only motivation to cause them to consider Christ as Savior. Now, to be sure, there are better reasons for coming to God than the fear of hell. But if the fear of hell is the only thing that might shake a person loose from his bondage to sin and cause him to consider the beauties of Christ, then for love's sakes, so be it. There are better reasons for Benjamin to obey me than to fear a spanking. But if the fear of a spanking is the only thing that will keep him out of the street, then for love's sake, so be it. I'm not nearly as hesitant as some to cause you to fear the judgment of God. Because I have ringing in my ears the words of Jesus when he said, Don't fear the person who can kill the body and after that has nothing that he can do. I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body can cast both body and soul into hell. Luke 12. That's the second reason. The third reason and this one, I think, may be the most important of all. If we don't preach about God's righteous judgment, there's an aspect of His character that we miss, and therefore we cannot love Him for who He is. If hearing about the righteous judgment of God makes it harder for you to love God then the God you love is probably a figment of your own imagination and not the true God. If we will love the true God, we must know the true God. There's something very wrong, I think, if we can only praise God as the loving Heavenly Father and not as the righteous judge. In preparing for this morning's service, I looked through two hymnals trying to find a hymn that would celebrate the righteous judgment of God. And I couldn't find one. So I went to the Psalter hymnal and found one 
and told David and Laurie to sing it for us. There's something wrong when we cannot praise God for His righteous judgment because He is God and He is admirable in all His nature. And we ought not imply by our silence that His judgment is not admirable. And so for those three reasons, it's imperative for every pastor to preach to his people now and then about final judgment. And the text that I've chosen that I would like you to look at with me is Romans 1, verse 28, through Romans 2, verse 11. And if you have a Bible, I would like very much for you to look at it with me. And I'll try to answer three questions from this passage. Who will be judged? On what basis will they be judged? And into what alternatives will they come? First, who will be judged? Verses 5 and 6. According to your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. The simple answer is everybody will be judged. But now there was in Paul's day a group of people who felt that they would escape judgment. And that's why Paul has to stress as he moves on through this text that that's not the case. Namely, the Jews. Paul approaches the problem like this. Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. He shows that a typical Gentile of his day, that is a non-Jew, is without excuse and liable to judgment because he has sufficient knowledge of what he should do, yet doesn't do it. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. In other words, where there is sufficient knowledge that God is to be glorified and thanked, and yet men do not do it, they are inexcusable and liable to judgment. Then in the latter part of chapter 1, we read the sorts of activities into which people who do not acknowledge God come. Verse 28 following. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice. Now let me interrupt here. Lest you say as we read this, Oh my! I'm sure not guilty of all those. That's not the point. Nobody's guilty of all of them, probably. The point is, this is the sort of thing that people do who do not acknowledge God. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
Those are the sorts of things Paul saw in the social and family fabric of the Gentile world as he looked around. But there was a small enclave of people in that Gentile world who said to themselves, that's awful. And in passing judgment, in disdain upon the Gentiles, reinforced their own sense of security that they themselves will escape the judgment of God. Yet according to the Apostle, not only are these Jews subject to judgment, so are the Gentiles. Or not only are the Gentiles, but so are the Jews. This is what verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 mean. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who judges. You could just see somebody as Paul read that list standing back and saying, Oh, I don't do those. You are without excuse, O man who judges, for in judging another you condemn yourself, for you who judge are practicing the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Or do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's exactly what some Jews in Paul's day supposed. Do you remember how John the Baptist first preached to the unbelieving in Israel when he came on the scene before Jesus did? He said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. Because God can raise up from stones children to Abraham. In other words, many in Israel had the misguided notion that belonging to the chosen people was a free pass at the judgment day. And so John the Baptist and Jesus after him and Paul after him had to struggle to make it clear that it was not one's race or one's outward form of religion or one's heritage that saved one. It was whether one stood with Jesus or not. Jesus said to the Jewish cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, Woe to you, for if the miracles that occurred in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, but as it is, it will be easier for Tyre and Sidon, the Gentiles, than it will be for you on the day of judgment, he said to the Jewish city. Jesus takes the false notion and turns it right on its head, worse for the Jews, because they were greatly privileged above the Gentiles. And isn't that precisely what Romans 2 verses 9 and 11 mean? Look at Romans 2, 9 and 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To whom much is given will much be required. And therefore the Jews are first into blessing and first into judgment. No man is saved by his race or his heritage or his outward religious form. God is no respecter of these things. He looks on the heart 
and the outflowing of the heart in daily life. Which brings us to question number two. On what basis will Gentile and Jew be judged? But before I say that, I left out one thing I want to make sure not to leave out. Romans 3, 9 and 22 says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the upshot of that for us here in this room is that every single person here who has not fled to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness is under the wrath of God and heading for hell, no matter what else is true about us. And the other thing it means is that in our society here, in the Twin Cities, in Minneapolis, there are no pockets of society which will escape judgment. From the top of that IDS tower to the dens of Hennepin Avenue, corporate heads and cab drivers, congressmen and custodians, secretaries and sailors, housewives and harlots, pimps and pastors, they're all going to be there. We're all going to be there before God's final bar at that last fork in the road. And all of the power and money and looks and prestige in which our hearts sought refuge in this life will be like dust that has to be blown off the scales before the real issue of life can be weighed. Which now brings us to the second question. What is the real issue of life? On what basis will judgment happen? And the answer is given in Romans 2, verse 6. God will render to every man according to his deeds. Or verses 9 and 10 make it even more specific. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does evil good. The real issue of life is not our race or our job or our status or our salary or our looks or our religious form. The real issue is whether one does good or whether one does evil. But that's a problem, isn't it? Does Christianity really talk like that? What about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? and you will be saved. Didn't Jesus promise that there would be mercy and justification for the ungodly? Didn't Paul say, God saved us, Titus 3, 5, not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but He saved us according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And didn't He say also in Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. How can we be saved by grace through faith? On the one hand, and on the other hand, hear Paul say, you will be judged according to your deeds. Now, 
one way that people go about getting out of this apparent contradiction is by saying that this passage in Romans 2, verses 7 to 11, does not apply to believers. It only applies to unbelievers. I don't believe that. I think that contradicts the intention of Paul and the teachings of Jesus. Paul said, God will render to every man according to his deeds, not just to unbelievers. And it is sunshine clear from the rest of Paul's writings that he does believe there is a lifestyle that excludes from the kingdom of God and therefore must be avoided by Christians. For example, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. We're probably pretty familiar with the list of the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. He lists off the works of the flesh like envy, drunkenness, strife, jealousy, disputes, factiousness. And then he adds these words. Those, and he's talking to Christian Galatians, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, final judgment will accord with one's lifestyle. And then we turn to Jesus, who more strongly than Paul stressed that you cannot pass muster at the judgment day if your life has not been changed in accordance with Jesus' teachings. Consider Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, your Father will not forgive your trespasses. That's pretty simple and plain. And there's no weaseling out of that. That means judgment. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, that very familiar parable of the two builders, the wise and the foolish. Everyone who has heard these words of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And he won't get washed away when the floods come. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man who builds his house on sand and he will be washed away in the deluge. And that's a picture of judgment. And the issue there is, have we only been hearers of the word or have we been doers of the word? One more text from Jesus. And this is very crucial because in this text, I find the clue for how to solve this apparent contradiction between how we can be judged according to deeds and yet be saved by faith. Matthew 12, 34 to 37. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good. The evil man, out of his evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. And I say to you, that for every careless word that men speak, they will render an account in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. In other words, on the judgment day, we will be judged according to our deeds, including the deeds of the tongue, one of the hardest members of our body to control, because deeds are an infallible sign of the fullness 
of the heart. From the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, and so do the hands and the legs and the face. You can judge a tree by its fruit, and you can judge a heart by its deeds. The issue is not really, are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? The issue is, on the judgment day, how will God's judgment be shown to be just? And the answer is, he is going to certify that we have faith or not by calling our deeds to attest in the court to the reality or the absence of our faith. In the courtroom of the kingdom of God at the end of the age, all of us are going to be assembled. And we are all going to be guilty of a capital offense and worthy of condemnation. But in this mass of people, some are going to be acquitted and some are going to be condemned. And the deepest reason why some are acquitted and some are condemned is that those who are acquitted have been identified with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection whereby he paid the penalty of their sin. And the other group refused him and did not live with him. But Paul, in Romans 2, verses 7 to 10, is not calling that into question. What he's doing is saying this. Also in that courtroom, something else is going to happen. The judge is going to call a witness forward. And that witness is going to attest to the reality of whether we indeed had saving faith or not. And that witness is our deeds. And we know from Romans 1, 28 to 32 that we better not constrict deeds to just movements of the body, but attitudes of the mind as well. You can read verses 28 to 32 of Romans 1 and see many such attitudes. It is by our attitude and our actions that our faith will be certified. It is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But the heart of faith will overflow in a lifestyle that is very different than the lifestyle that flows from unbelief. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or the absence of our faith. And it is not inconsistent for God to judge us according to our deeds. Now, let me stress this distinction because it's very crucial. This is not to say that by our deeds we earn our salvation. Rather, our deeds exhibit our salvation. It is not that we merit righteousness. Rather, our deeds mark our new life in Christ. And it is not that our deeds deserve God's favor, but rather they demonstrate our faith. Keep those three distinctions in mind. Deeds do not earn, they exhibit. Deeds do not merit, they mark. Deeds do not deserve, they demonstrate. And therefore, God will render to every man according to his deeds, including Christians. And now, finally and briefly, 
our third question. What are the alternatives of judgment into which we will come? The answer is given in verses 7 and 8 of Romans 2. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God will give wrath and fury. Eternal life or wrath and fury, those are the two alternatives. And wrath and fury is not for a moment, but forever. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaks of those who have refused to obey the gospel, and he says, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And Jesus, more clearly yet, concludes that great parable of the final judgment in Matthew 25 with these words, these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Hell is the most appalling reality that we can imagine. No horror of suffering in this age, from the creation to this present day, can be compared to what John called the lake of fire and where Jesus said their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. To go through life distrusting and disobeying an infinite God is an infinite sin and will be punished by eternal torment. But if hell is unutterably unimaginable on the one side, Heaven and life with Christ in the age to come is indescribably beautiful to contemplate. The happiness of the saints in the age to come is going to be greater than all the happiness of all the people in all the experiences of happiness that the world has ever known. Has there ever been a moment, perhaps similar to the one I had yesterday as I walked out of this building after spending all day cooped up inside into that unbelievably lucid air of five o'clock yesterday. A moment in which you felt you would just explode for happiness. Part of that was that I'd spent all day in Psalm 23 too. If you have ever had a moment like that, do this with it. Multiply it a thousand times and then start letting it increase for an eternity. An eternity of increase. And then you might get a little glimpse of what the happiness of the saints in the age to come will be. I conclude with a summary of the answer to those three questions. All people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, godly and ungodly, will be judged. The basis of that judgment will be their works insofar as their works are a testimony to the reality of their faith in the living Christ. And third, that fork in the road leads either to eternal life or to wrath and fury. And therefore, choose life 
Why would you perish? And for those who've already chosen life, let's delight ourselves in the most unimaginably glorious promise that we can possibly have life with Christ in heaven.